Hello and welcome to the podcast of the Asia chapter of the Asian American Journalists Association. I'm Bill Poorman. And I'm Rebecca Iswara. We're your hosts for this series of interviews connected to the upcoming AAJA Asia virtual conference starting on the 28th of August. The new Now Next conference, or N3Con as we call it, brings together journalists from across Asia to discuss the issues affecting the news industry, with a focus on how working reporters, writers, and editors in all media get their jobs done. This year has been an especially tough one for the world and for the journalists who cover it. Global pandemic, global recession, global protest, geopolitical competition between the U.S. and China, tensions and risks are everywhere. These are the new front lines. That's the theme for this year's conference. Despite all these challenges, journalists are getting the job done, providing the news and context their viewers, readers, and listeners need. So to start this series, we thought we'd talk to a reporter who's been in the middle of all those trends. Remy Innocencio is the Asia correspondent for CBS News and a past president of the Asia chapter. His eventful first year on the job with CBS included not only what we've mentioned so far, but also natural disasters like volcanoes and typhoons. I caught up with him while he was stuck in Japan due to COVID travel restrictions, which he'll discuss. It's a fascinating conversation that also touches upon the history of the Asia chapter of AAJA and how it's benefited him in his career. We hope you enjoy it. Let's get started. So this is part of our uh, coverage, essentially, leading up to the AAJAN3 conference, virtual conference this year, unfortunately, coming up in August. And uh, one of the issues that we'll be talking about is how journalists are kind of being caught in the middle, maybe not even kind of, in the disputes between the U.S. and China. So China is on your beat. I'm wondering what, if anything, you've experienced so far from the increased tensions going on. Sure. The increased tensions that are happening between the U.S. and China, for me personally, aren't felt too much. Of course, we're watching what's happening with um, the the back and forth with journalists, both in China uh, getting expelled and stresses on um, uh, Chinese journalists. Well, some people would say Chinese journalists. Some people would say they're not journalists. That's up for other people to decide. Uh, But uh, those folks also getting pushed out from uh, their bureaus in the United States. Uh, the biggest fear for me and my team at CBS is whether it'll happen to us. Uh, when we see the headlines, we're like, okay, hmm, are we next? Should we um, start packing our bags? <laughs> Should we look for another place to move to in Asia? Whether that's in Hong Kong, where we've been for much of the past uh, year, or, or whether it's here in Tokyo, where we've been covering uh, the coronavirus after um, China and all other countries uh, shut their borders. So on a day-to-day basis, we're sort of gritting our teeth, wondering, okay, what is what is Beijing going to do? Uh, what's a foreign ministry going to say? Uh, what is President Trump going to do? Uh, is he going to surprise us on that side in a tit-for-tat kind of thing? Right, and, and it is very much tit-for-tat. I mean, um, the Trump administration has made it clear that they're going to start upping the pressure and have been upping the pressure, and now China is responding. Uh, We have had all these expulsions. Uh, You mentioned whether you'll get renewed. You're up for renewal, right? 
Yeah. Um, so I've just celebrated my one year anniversary. Uh, I'm, I should say back in China, but I'm not in China. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in Asia, <laughs> but um, uh, I'm supposed to be living in, in China, in Beijing. Uh, but because I haven't been in Beijing, in China, for more than 100 days as of this recording, we have uh, run out uh, on my first year for my visa there. So we have to uh, reapply for that. But um, because of all the issues with coronavirus, we've only just gotten word that uh, we can reapply, uh, but here in Tokyo, and then for all the process to happen, at which point sometime in the future, we don't know, then we'll be able to go back to Beijing. Well, just to be clear, were you covering the coronavirus in Tokyo and got trapped there, or were you transiting and got trapped there? What happened? Yeah, that's 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 what everyone wonders. Like, how the heck did we get here? Uh, short answer is yes, we were covering the coronavirus here in Japan, but before this, we were in Seoul, South Korea, and uh, at that time, it was I remember it was February twenty fifth. And we had gotten word that South Korea was about to close its borders because of coronavirus. My team at the time and I, we had to sit down and we were like, okay, do we get stuck here? Which means that we could be in Seoul, in South Korea for an indefinite amount of time. Or do we move to Japan where CBS's secondary bureau is here mm -hmm. in Tokyo? Um, because we had our outfit here, we decided this would be the place. In addition, we were trying to be forward thinking and trying to anticipate where the coronavirus um, infections might pop after Korea. Hmm. And we made our best guesstimate, and then we decided to make the move uh, here to Tokyo. Little did we know that uh, um, as Korea was closing its borders, basically the rest of Asia, and eventually, of course, we know Europe and the United States uh, closed theirs, and we didn't think that we'd be stuck here this whole entire time. Now, this is your first year, right, on this beat? With, with mm -hmm. CBS, yeah. Um, yeah. So let's see. So far, you've only had um, crackdowns in Hong Kong with protests that you've covered there, uh, global coronavirus yeah. coming out of China. Um, let's see, peace uh, offerings between South and North Korea. Uh, what am I missing here? Uh, <laughs> uh, you're also missing not one volcano, but two volcanoes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, and a typhoon also. Uh, but those are minor blips in the big <laughs> arc of protests in Hong Kong in the pandemic, uh, projectiles out of uh, North Korea around Asia. Um, but yeah, those volcanoes, well, the first one was in New Zealand in December and then uh, in the Philippines uh, in, in January. Yeah. Is this what you expected your first year to look like? <laughs> no, in a word. However... Uh, I consider myself lucky and I'm very happy and content because if you ask any of my friends, if you ask my family, they'll say that I am the kind of guy to go, go, go. And if I'm sitting around not doing anything, even for, I'll give myself two days liberally, but if I'm not doing something for a day, um, I won't be able to sit around just to relax. Um, so in a way, I'm really happy that all this, from a professional perspective, not from a personal or not from a, you know, oh, crap, all this is actually happening in the world perspective, right. just from a professional satisfaction perspective, um, I'm the kind of guy to go, go, go. And uh, pretty much ever since I, I took up this job, it really has been uh, that situation. 
So to bring it back to China, to the Hong Kong protests specifically. So uh, obviously a lot of footage of you right in the midst of it as tear gas is firing. Um, First of all, can you tell us what you learned from covering the protest as a reporter, as a journalist? What have you learned professionally along the way? Oh, wow. That's a very philosophical 30,000 foot level. (laughs) All right. What what have I learned? I was going for 40. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that comes to mind is that when I thought that I was tired, and I was definitely covering the protests uh, for our morning news show, uh, CBS This Morning, to our evening news show, CBS Evening News, and then for CBSN, when I thought that I was tired and I couldn't do more, Somehow, whatever it was, whether it was because we knew we were covering history or because I'm passionate about it, like I was able to reach down and find energy to make sure that we covered the story well, uh, we did it justice, and that we could continue on. Um, I'm not saying that it was easy. I'm not going to pretend like, oh, I'm so amazing. I reached in and found that, you know, hidden 20%. Not at all. I want to be real and say that it was tough. We were so tired, sometimes going on two hours of sleep, one hour of sleep. But uh, it surprised me that, one, I could do that. And two, looking around, that it was everyone, almost all reporters in Hong Kong, whether they were local or international, also doing the same thing. Uh, Unprecedented is the word, historic is the word of what happened in Hong Kong. And I think that gave so many of us the impetus and the, the, I would say caffeine rush, but caffeine rush over the course of seven months uh, that kept us going. So um, reaching in and finding the energy that I didn't know I had to keep on going. Hmm. So when the story is breaking, it, it's, it, it just, it comes from somewhere. Yeah. And, and you yeah, keep going. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, uh, I, I love breaking news. Uh, I love to be where the action is. The action did end up being, you know, it, it, concentrated in Hong Kong, which, as many of us know, is a very dense city to begin with. And so it's almost as if you couldn't get away from it. Uh, Where we were putting up was right in Admiralty, uh, in the heart of the action. So even from my hotel room, on any given day of a protest, even if you tried to, you know, take a breather, you would see people out on the streets, people across the legislature, uh, LegCo, um, protesting. Uh, And the million-person protest, they were, like, right outside you couldn't not, but one, want to cover it, uh, and two, get excited about covering it. Now, of course, um, this is part of a larger, what in the West we would describe as a crackdown on Hong Kong. So to bring it back to this increasing tension and pressure uh, that's coming from China, um, did you have any run-ins with authorities? Uh, any times that you had to think about how you were going to cover something? There was a pivotal moment in Hong Kong when we realized that the police there thought more about containment or about, I guess protesters would say, um, repressing the movement than they thought about um, the welfare of journalists. Let's see, when was this? This was probably sometime in July of last year. Up until then, uh, for about a month before that, the journalists uh, operating in Hong Kong were able to do their job, get really up close and personal, actually, uh, with the police, with the protesters, really in your face. But, you know, they, they weren't trying to harass. They were just, you know, getting the cameras in there, uh, trying to report. And then at some point in July, I think when maybe when the police 
we're starting to get tired of this day in and day out of trying to do this cat and mouse uh, back and forth with protesters. Bunch of journalists, including my, my team, we were in an area of Hong Kong called Shengwan, which is just one MTR stop away from Central, the financial district. And we were caught in between the police on one side and the protesters on another side. And all of a sudden, the police decided to charge. And uh, we thought, oh, they'll go around us. They didn't. Uh, they basically had their uh, shields across the whole entire street, including the sidewalks, pushing into everyone, protesters and journalists. And we were like, press, press, press. Everyone was saying, repress, press. And they just wouldn't listen, didn't do anything. And they kept pretty much barreling into us. And we were caught in between both sides. And then they started throwing, launching tear gas. And this was a new kind of tear gas um, that I think reporting afterwards had said that it was from China and not originally from the United States. Hmm. And it was tougher and harsher. And I thought that um, my gas mask at the time wasn't working. Um, I was gasping, wheezing. Um, I retched a couple times. I guess mm. I could say that. <laughs> it's yes, real. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, it, I, I thought that I was going to vomit out of all of my orifices, uh, that I was going to pass out. Um, and I just ran. Uh, and I found an alley just to get out of there. Hmm. Looking back, that was a point when I realized that things had changed in Hong Kong and that the police, if they didn't mean business before, and they did, they meant even more business now. And the containment, going back to the word, had turned into more of a crackdown. Hmm. Hmm. And whether that's reflective of um, how much do you think that reflected the central government ordering this? Or as you said, were the police just sick of it? What's your sense of it? Yeah, I think I hate it when people say it's both, but I have to say it's both. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> as an interviewer, hey, if I it's true, if that. it's true, then okay. <laughs> I just broke my own rule. Anyways, so um, it's 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 uh, looking at both sides. Definitely, the central government uh, had uh, has its um, directives that it tells uh, the Hong Kong police force what to do. Hong Kong police force, because they're the main body for you know um, you know enforcing government uh, regulations, laws, policies. That's what they have to do. Um, but what I had seen in terms of the Hong Kong police force, which, uh, as many people know, had been respected as some of the best uh, police, uh, policemen and women in all of Asia, highly, highly respected, uh, the boys in blue there, they then, you know, started to tank in terms of respect, credibility, and whether they had been co-opted by the central government. There, you know, the, these are anecdotes, uh, that I have heard. Uh, so take them with a grain of salt, but I have been told that there are Hong Kong policemen and women who carry out their jobs during the daytime, who did, and then went to protest at night, uh, or during the massive weekend protests. So wow, that really? shows huh. that they are, yeah, yeah. So that shows that they are torn, um, that they're doing their job, mm -hmm. and that um, that's why many of them do want to keep the helmets on that had the reflective surfaces, so they they couldn't see their faces, so people couldn't see their faces, so that when they could um, go out and protest, they would know who the police were at that time. So um, I think there's um, 
maybe a bipolarism or a dichotomy between day and night with many in the in the police force. With that said, there are people in the Hong Kong police force who are just, you know, tired, angry. And let's be honest, there are also people who do support um, the, uh, the leaders of Hong Kong as well as the central government. This is not uh, an all or nothing thing of 100% against uh, Hong Kong's chief executive and uh, the uh, LegCo and the Communist Party. Changing gears a little bit, earlier uh, you said that you were kind of unwilling to say whether the Chinese journalists in the U.S., are journalists or not. <laughs> so let me just ask you that question just directly again. So uh, what do you think of uh, our potential colleagues, I guess, in the U.S. being ejected by our, uh, the Trump Our peers. Yes. Uh, what do I think of it? I think that, I think for the most part, they're doing their jobs and they do want to um, learn about what's happening in the United States. And that is very, very important in order to keep dialogue and understanding going. I think that if the United States, you know, for example, ejected all of China's journalists, that would not be ideal either, because we are supposed to uphold the freedoms that we are protected by with the Constitution, right? Uh, freedom of speech, freedom of the press. Uh, so we would not be uh, we would not be adhering to the own standards that uh, we are trying to uh, to live by. Uh, with that said, there are critics out there who say that, um, you know, not everyone is a journalist uh, and that there are spies, I'll say the word. Yeah. With that said, there are people in China who think that uh, American journalists are spies. So I think if you boil it down, <laughs> if you switch places and you put everyone in China, in the United States, vice versa, everyone say, oh, yeah. They might be a spy. Oh, yeah, they might be a spy. It's the two different sides of the same coin. Focusing a bit more on the U.S., um, so President Trump, of course, has famously called all of us enemies of the people, uh, which, of course, is um, not a good thing for journalists to hear, not good for our republic, in my opinion. But I'm wondering more, has this had an impact on your ability to report in Asia at all? So the lack of support from the president of the United States, does it have an impact on your ability to do journalism abroad? No. Uh, short answer to that is that we don't feel it. I think in large part because the farther we are away from Washington uh, and the soil of the United States, the less we feel that. Asia has its own challenges uh, depending on the country you go to, whether it's China or the Philippines or Thailand or Japan, whatever. Um, but you know, no, we're not feeling that. I think when we, when, when I hear that, if anything, it is, I guess, um, a, a stress in the head, uh, hmm. more of like mental or a psychological stress or something that I'm thinking, gosh, I wish he, I wish he didn't say that. Um, cause we're, we're doing this in the best interest of the people, uh, best interest of getting information and sharing it. Uh, and at least from the work that I've been doing, I haven't gotten any uh, gotten any blowback from the president himself in terms of Hong Kong with the pandemic. Um, if anything, uh, I've been thanked by many people, uh, not from the, not from Donald Trump, but uh, from many people saying thank you for telling us about what's happening in Hong Kong, especially in the early days of the pandemic when we were in Wuhan, mm -hmm. um, as things were starting. Yeah, uh, since you mentioned it, let me ask the same question again uh, about your reporting out of Wuhan. How did you grow as a journalist from that experience? What what did you take away professionally from that? 
So as a journalist, I remember we had a conversation before we went that was a sort of, um, I guess, not a come to Jesus moment, but I'll say a come to journalism moment uh, <laughs> where we were like, okay, we knew that something was happening in Wuhan. We knew that it was a public health issue. Um, we knew that there were reports that it was possibly similar to SARS. Um, my Asia bureau chief and my cameraman, we all sat down and we were like, do we want to go? Hmm. Um, we knew that our boss uh, wanted us to go. However, <laughs> our boss was like, yeah, however, our, bo it, our boss was like, it's up to you. But, you know, if if he's if he's going to watch this, I'm sure he'll watch this. He knows we all knew he was like, go. <laughs> yes. Well, it was even then, I think it was beginning to be understood to be a gigantic global story. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we were concerned and that was um, a massive weighing of personal health and mm -hmm. safety going into a kind of a void uh, of unknown. We decided to go, obviously. Uh, I do not regret going. I will use I will use this as a five-second toot our horn because CBS was the first international organization to land and to start reporting there. Um, friends at other international news organizations started texting me and they were like, how is it? Is it safe? We're, we're, we're not sure if we should go. Uh, I won't name those names, but they're international. We know them all. Um, and uh, I was like, yeah, but we don't know when, but you know, like, as for me, I, I think we're stronger and the world is stronger when we have more eyes on a story mm. uh, from Hong Kong to the pandemic. So I was like, get down here if you can, if you think it's safe, uh, let the world know. So we went down. I don't regret it at all. However, if I got sick or if one of my team got sick, would I have regretted it? Like, I pause and I'm getting like the chills because it could have totally gone the other way. You know, we didn't know how contagious this was. We know now, but you know, three or four months later, we're still trying to figure out how contagious this is. Yeah. And we got on a plane, we landed without, we didn't have masks. We were walking around interviewing people. We were outside the main hospital. We went to the uh, seafood market that at that time we thought was the origin of the coronavirus. I remember thinking, with my cameraman, this is it. Let's get out. I'm going to say one thing to the camera so that we can stick it in our piece. Then we're getting into the van and we're getting the heck out of there, uh, which is what we did. I did it twice. My cameraman was like, you sure? I was like, yes, we're here. We're not doing this again. Let's do it twice for safety. And then uh, we got in, disinfected our, our shoes. I remember getting into the hotel and like taking off my jacket by the door and like leaving everything there. But, um, yeah, it, if someone got sick or someone died, like, I would not be sitting here saying that I didn't regret it. Uh, it'd be a totally different story. Hmm. And, and you said you didn't have masks. So you were there without, like, basic PPE and, and that sort of thing. That's yeah, incredible. so we didn't have, um, let's see, we didn't have masks. We managed to find, I think our driver... Uh, I think our driver managed to source masks for us while we were there and quickly. Uh, it wasn't the N95s. It was the surgical masks with like the little like ridges that run across. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't know if they worked or not. 
Um, but I remember by the end, when we left, we did have masks on. Because I remember shooting some stuff with masks on. Yeah. But I think when we went in, uh, we yeah we just weren't sure what was happening. You know, any kind of crisis situation that you run into, from war zones to disease hotspots, the things that aren't known more outnumber the things that aren't known outnumber the things that are known. But with a yeah. novel coronavirus, boy, the number of unknowns just spiked. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a hell of a thing to run into that kind of environment yeah. and yeah. report out of there. So kudos to you and to your team uh, for doing that. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. I'm, I'm happy and I'm proud of what we've done. Uh, it's been a long slog and kudos really to the, the journalists, not just in China, but around the world who have jumped on this and we've seen this also explode and, you know, we won't stop covering this. Well, starting to wrap up here, let's talk about AAJA. Let's talk about the Asian American Journalists Association, uh, the Asia chapter specifically. Ramey, you were uh, the president uh, in the past, correct? Yeah, yeah. Talk a little bit about the differences between the time when you started at AAJA Asia uh, and today. Sure. Size uh, comes up first in my head. When I joined the Asia chapter, when I moved to Hong Kong in 2011, uh, I was used to the kind of family and community that I had in New York, where you know New York is the biggest chapter for all of AAJA in the United States, as well as Asia. And I thought, okay, who's out there? And I remember sending an email out to a couple of folks who I had been uh, in touch with. And I said, hey, let's go grab a drink or grab a meal. Uh, someone had suggested the Foreign Correspondents Club and I went and there were about um, 10 to 12 people. And I was like, it's so nice to meet you. You know, it's like, so how many others are there? And then I was told, oh, this is all of us. And I was like, oh, this is really small. <laughs> and for the Asia Pacific, which, you know, has by some counts two to three billion people, I thought, I think we could probably grow this. <laughs> yeah, that's a low so, percentage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, let's see, 12 people out of, <laughs> yes. even if you did 1.2 billion, <laughs> you carry all the zeros. We know where this is going. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so then I asked, okay, are people, where, where are other people? A couple of people in Tokyo, some in Bangkok, in Beijing, in Singapore. Um, and uh, from 2011 through 2015, um, yeah, I started to try to get more people um, signed up to AAJA, doing uh, social events, you know, hangouts, get to know people, and then started to do uh, the N3Con, uh, which we launched first in, what was it? It was in 2011, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, seeing how N3Con has blossomed ever since we started it way back then has made me smile. God, I'm going to say this and it's going to make me sound so old, but I'm going to say I feel like a proud dad when I look back at like the past nine years. Hey, that's okay. <laughs> I remember or 2011, we had about 100 attendees. 2012, we had probably about 100. 2013, we had like 200. And 2014, I think my last year, we had like 300. And so uh, then when I left, I felt like we went out on a nice bang, or I went out on a nice bang. And to see that Nithukon continues on and, you know, with you and uh, Singapore and uh, Korea and Hong Kong all totally rolling along, it's, it makes me really happy. Yeah, this is uh, the virtual conference. As we mentioned, it has to go virtual this year. The virtual conference yeah. coming up in August uh, is the 10th one. So, so your baby is 10 years old, Ramey. 
<laughs> wow. Wow. How do I feel about that? Yeah, don't think Still. too hard about that. <laughs> <laughs> Still a kid, but uh, but I'm happy that there's so many folks just everywhere. Uh, and oh, one thing uh, that I also wanted to add is how it's changed is that um, the Asia chapter has so been on the ball in terms of um, not just the conferences and going digital, which is hugely important these days, but with uh, statements in support of what are more and more so perceptions on attacks of the freedom of the press and of speech um, from the expulsion of our peers at the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post in China to the um, closure of ABS-CBN in the Philippines. Uh, and of course, what's happening in Hong Kong uh, with um, uh, attacks on press freedom and, and journalists there. So I'm really, I'm really buoyed, and I'm really happy to see that AJ is stepping up to to stand for the beliefs that basically make us who we are and allow us to operate to do the job that we're supposed to be doing. Well, it's an amazing organization. Uh, I really only got involved a couple of years ago. You know, the, the joke about AAJA is you can either be Asian, American, a journalist, or any combo, really, and come on in. Yeah. So I qualify on two of those, not so much on the Asian part, maybe. But it's really a, a fantastic, welcoming organization. So I've enjoyed my time there, uh, you know, on chat groups and in uh, the conferences and the events. So just personally, from my perspective, I would uh, recommend everyone considering membership, right? Sign up, because uh, it's stronger with more people involved. And then again, yes, there is that professional support, the, the statements of support from your fellow journalists, uh, plus training programs and other ways to improve mm -hmm. your skills. So um, it's, it's become a really robust organization here in Asia, I would say. Yeah. The, the word family has... Um come up over the years when describing AAJA. The hashtag is AAJA family. And you'll find a lot of posts from the United States and in Asia uh, with regards to that. Uh, inclusive has been a word that I've tried to, uh, when I was in the Asia chapter at that time, before coming back this time, inclusive was the word that I tried to, I guess, instill in the organization then. Um, and you talked about something about um, like stronger together. Uh, my motto then, and still to this day through AJ has been uh, together we rise uh, mm. because with all of us together uh, we are stronger we can rise higher uh, and we can do our job better fantastic uh, Ramey any other thoughts before we wrap up here no uh, I've had a, a good chat with you thank you so much for the um, for the probing thoughtful questions there uh, I will add one thing uh, I often get um, uh, get a question on whether people in the U.S., if anyone's watching from from there around the world, if they should come to Asia to be a reporter. Mm. Uh, I will always be an advocate of coming to Asia because the stories are so amazing and so fulfilling, as evidenced in the past uh, a year. Um, so if you have any questions uh, for anyone watching uh, or listening, reach out to any of us at AJ Asia, uh, and I know we would welcome you uh, with your questions and try to get you over to Asia because uh, the more people out here, the better. Fantastic. And I would second that. I came out to Asia six years ago to Singapore and it's, it's, it's a life defining experience. So I, I second that 
wholeheartedly. Awesome. Thank you very much <laughs> for uh, taking the time today. You bet. Thank you. Dude. Many thanks to Remy Innocencio, Asia correspondent for CBS News, for helping us kick off this series of interviews ahead of N3Con, which starts on the 28th of August. You can still sign up for this virtual conference at n3con.com. Just click on Get Tickets, and you can check out the full agenda there, too. Thanks for listening, and please let us know what you think of this podcast, or if you have ideas for topics or people to talk to. Reach out to us at aajaasiapodcast at gmail.com. You'll find that in the show notes as well. I'm Bill Porman. And I'm Rebecca Iswara. Thanks again. Thanks again.